You're listening to Australia's number one wine podcast, The Vincast. As we rapidly approach episode 100, quite a milestone, uh, I would really lo- appreciate everyone's support uh, and um, putting the word out about the podcast. So please, anything you can do to share your enjoyment of this podcast, uh, whether it be on social media like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, uh, or by going and leaving a rating and a review on the iTunes store, I would really appreciate it because uh, it does help um, promote the podcast and gets more people listening and enjoying. And I've got hopefully something really exciting planned for episode 100 so please uh, stay tuned and you'll find out more soon Episode 96 of the Vincast, I chat with Sam Conyu, a New Zealand-born winemaker who's never actually made a vintage in New Zealand, um, but now she makes some amazing wines in Tasmania with her Stargazer brand. Hello there, Vincasters. Welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Uh, it has been really fascinating to see how uh, how much people have enjoyed uh, last week's episode of the podcast with Sue and Roger from Living Wines. Uh, had you know a number of really wonderful reviews on iTunes. Had a lot of people contacting me on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that kind of thing to show their appreciation uh, to their uh, fantastic story. I really did learn a lot. Uh, it was fan- fantastic. Uh, and actually, this week's episode I also recorded whilst I was in Hobart uh, recently with Sam Conyu. And uh, she has uh, an amazing uh, pedigree for winemaking in Australia. Uh, although she wasn't actually born in Australia, she's actually from New Zealand. Uh, she spent many years working at Wirra Wirra uh, and has uh, recently uh, relocated to Tasmania where she's making some really outstanding wines under the Stargazer brand. So we had a, a chat uh, and uh, and found out her story. Stick around to the end to find out how you can get in contact with us to let us know if you did enjoy this week's episode. Sam, thank you very much for making some time whilst I'm here in uh, in Hobart, and thank you for welcoming me to your lovely home. No problems at all, James. And uh, and welcome on the Vincast. Uh, um, uh, usually, I start every episode by asking my guest if they can remember if there was a particular moment. Like a like an epiphany moment with wine that made them think about it in a different way that sort of set them on the path to follow a career in the wine industry. Yeah, I've had a I've been fortunate enough to have a few epiphany moments. I guess the highlight or the one which really set me on this path was um, a tasting group that I was involved in through a wine bar that I used to work at in Christchurch in New Zealand. Yep, um, and the wine bar manager also used to work at a bottle shop and run tastings which we used to go to and it was a if memory serves correctly 1993 Atarangi Pinot and that was really the start of it and I thought even at that point uh, when I was still doing my first degrees that was kind of the point where I went yeah this is pretty cool. Did you grow up in Christchurch? No in Blenheim. 
Blenheim. Oh, so mm. you're from Marlborough. Yeah, but yeah. had nothing, nothing to do with the wine <clears throat> industry. Considering the wine industry is so, so important to Marlborough, what other industries are there? Well, there were other industries. Right. So this is um, back in the day, you know, in the late... 1980s, where the wine industry was really just starting off. So mm-hmm. names like Hunters and Montana were the, the the beginning of it all, I suppose. But it was really only the late 80s, early 1990s that it really started to go nuts. Mm. Um, so back in the day, uh, there was apricot orchards and asparagus and carrot, the huge horticultural yeah. industry in Marlborough. Uh, none of which exists anymore, of course. So pull that out, plant vines. Yeah, bit of a Something monoculture, wrong. which is really is quite sad in a way because yeah. um, that, that, I think I, it's a lot more healthy to have various farms operating. Unfortunately, the only uh, visit I've made to New Zealand um, was to Marlborough because uh, at the time I was working for the company that owned Cloudy Bay, sure. and uh, and so I went down for a wine event. But I did have a day off to kind of drive around and. Just Sauvignon Blanc vines, as far as the eye could see. Yeah, and it, it, it did kind of depress me a little bit. Yeah, because um, I thought, you know, how good could the wine possibly be if it's all just, you know, and, and they all looked relatively newly planted. You know, maybe three to five year old vines. Yeah, exactly. And I think well, Marlborough now <clears throat> is twenty two. It's over twenty two thousand hectares. That's a lot. So it's massive, yeah. absolutely huge. And, you know, I mean, there was nothing on that skull when I was living there. Mm. So, yeah. And so what did you study in Christchurch? Uh, law degree and BA in political science and English literature. Really? Mm. How did you get interested in, in that sort of stuff? Would well, you, you I was excel, going excel to, um, you know, I was going to be a lawyer and take on the world. Politician, and, maybe? Well, no, I was going to be a diplomat and work at the UN. Watched far too much LA Law and all of that kind of crap when I was at school. <laughs> so I got deluded about what the legal profession was all about. Yeah. So yeah. But so was, so um you some of the, the friends you made at, at uni and they, they were interested in wine, that's how you sort of got introduced. Well, I to started it? working so I worked in hospitality all through right, okay. um my my um uni days mm. just to kinda, of, you know, keep money in the bank. Uh, and I worked, as I said, I worked at this great wine bar in the Art Centre in Christchurch, and that's how it all sort of started, really. Okay. Um, it was, you know, kind of pretty revolutionary at that point in time. I mean, we're talking the early 1990s, and they had set over 70 wines available by the glass. Wow. So pretty groundbreaking. Um, and obviously, we had access to all of that. So just the whole food, wine thing, um, you know, winemakers coming in to drop off deliveries, winemakers' dinners, all of that kind of thing. I was like, oh, this could be a pretty fun thing to do. And the New Zealand wine was predominantly, you know, what you were being exposed to, what you got yeah, sort of through yourself Yeah, a fair amount of Mulaturga to start off with. <laughs> is, there, is there much Mulaturga in New Zealand Not, not now, but, you know, back in that point, back in that day, it was really before the Savalanche thing started to go well, crazy. So Mulaturga. No, no offence to Mulaturga, but, geez, you could... Pick, you know, much more interesting German varieties to plant. But that's how Giesen, like that's how Giesen started out. That mm. was their cash cow to start with, with Mollertega. Yeah, yep. okay. Before they moved on to Sauvignon Blanc, like the the rest of the country. So, yeah. Did you find yourself um, connecting with uh, with any particular regions in New Zealand? Were you, were you connected to Marlborough having come from there? Not really. I guess, I mean, that was one of the main motivating things after I did my postgrad in terms of moving to Australia was the realisation that if I stayed in New Zealand, I'd pretty much, you know, the odd, odds of, of 
been stuck making Sauvignon Blanc were pretty high mm. um, and that wasn't really what I was excited about. So, yeah, Marlborough not so much. Um, and also I'd grown up there, so, you know, that's that whole kind of small town mentality of can't wait to get away. Mm. Um, I mean, it's a totally different place now to what it, what it is then. I mean, whilst it's still farming and it's, you know, grape growing and all of that kind of thing, there is a cultural element that the wine industry brings to Yeah. To places and certainly wine tourism is a big part of that in terms of, yeah, changing the whole feel of a place. So you finished your studies and then said, did you actually start working in? No, never actually worked as a lawyer. Pretty much figured out. Did you you disappoint anyone? Sorry? Was anyone disappointed about that? No, I think, um, I mean, my my parents or my mother was um, really supportive of me just doing what I wanted to do and whatever would make me happy. So, I mean, there was a certain point where she would introduce me to people as the world's most overqualified waitress. Um, so that was pretty blunt and to the point. Right. Um, but no, there was no kind of like, oh, you're not going to be a lawyer. That's a bummer type thing. It was just like, yeah, you've got to do what makes you happy. So. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so what what was the decision? When was the decision made that you'd? Kind of uh, well, I actually in? started when I moved across. So, I finished studying, finished my first degrees in ninety four, and then moved to Australia in ninety five, um, and was just working. I was in Adelaide, staying with some friends there. It was kind of going to be the start of the big overseas experience. Was working in restaurants there. Um, and then went back to New Zealand in 96 and did my postgrad when, at Lincoln. And in, in winemaking? Mm-hmm. Yeah, winemaking and viticulture. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. And how, how was that experience, uh, having, you know, worked in, in hospitality and, you know, getting interested in wines, to then actually kind of, particularly in terms of a scientific aspect, what, what, what was your experience as far as studying it? Did you get a lot of it? Oh, I loved it. it. Yeah? Yeah. Just immediate, that immediate kind of click of, yeah, this is what I want to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um. And, you know, it was a really quite a small program at Lincoln at that time. I'm sure it still is. Um, great group of people, some great lecturers. And, yeah, it was fantastic. Loved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whilst you were studying, did you work vintage anywhere? Not whilst I was studying, but I was, so I was still working at this wine bar in Christchurch. It was kind of one of those places that you sort of – can't quite let go of, so was going backwards and forwards there for a while. Um, but while I was there in 96, met this great um, couple from Oregon in the States and they offered me a job um, at their winery, Alt Cove. Oh, um, with yeah. Adam. Yeah, with Adam Campbell. So it was his parents. Yeah. Yeah, Pat I, and Joe. I, I visited so, them. Um, lovely. Yeah. So that was my first vintage, actually, in 97, was at Elk Cove. Far out. Yeah, crazy. You would, you would have thought it would be in New Zealand, but... Uh... No, I've never actually done vintage in New Zealand. Really? No, no. Wow. So, well, you heard, you yeah. heard it here, guys. <laughs> um, the one so, that got away. So, what was your? How was your experience at in uh, in the Willamette? Oh, loved it. Yeah. Um, Did you like Portland? Po- Portland is just the most. I mean, I ho- love that whole northwest area because I ended up going back in two thousand and doing another vintage at Beaufrere as well. Oh wow! Um, so and Mr. subsequently, Mr. yeah, 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 and subsequently have done a few sort of trips catching up with friends and. Did you head into yeah. Washington State as far as yeah, uh, Walla Walla a and time. yeah, in and, Seattle and, yeah. and Washington and gone up to um, 
Vancouver as well. So yeah, the whole Pacific Northwest. Did you go to the Okanagan? No, I haven't been to the Okanagan. Yeah, I, didn't I, really get, want to go. I, I really want to go to the Okanagan at some yeah. point. But I like Vancouver. Yeah, Canada's a pretty cool place. And uh, and obviously, you know, Willamette, uh, Elk Cove and Beaufort. Mm. Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir. Did yeah. you did you kind of, you know, get connected with Pinot Noir in a oh, big absolutely. way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. That was kind of where it all started out. But, um, yeah, just, um, I mean, anyone who's spent any time in, in Oregon and the Willamette will know how obsessive they are about Pinot. Mm-hmm. Um, and more from the perspective of, well, that whole sort of integrated model of, you know, being a vineyard and growing it and making it and blah, blah, blah. So, um, yeah, that obsessive nature of being a Pinophile, crazy. Uh, at what point were you sort of tasting really extensively, like drinking wines from overseas and maybe wines from Australia, you know, wh- wh- like to sort of really kind of hone your palate and, and find out maybe what kind of wine you wanted to make sort of further down the line? Yeah, I well, I guess, you know, because I'd come from hospitality, there'd already always been that exposure to... Okay. To, you know, drinking pretty broadly. Mm. Um, and I had a great group of friends both in Christchurch and in Adelaide as well. Um, and we just drank a lot. <laughs> um, so that's kind of... And, you know, I mean, you go to Oregon and they drink Burgundy. So, yeah, there's... Um, have always been fortunate enough to have a pretty broad... Mm. tasting exposure so yeah so between those experiences uh in in oregon um where were you working as far as uh as so i did my first vintage in in oregon and then so that was 97 98 went to cat mental in western australia mm-hmm. and then after that was david the, heinen still there yeah yep okay and mark messenger and john durham mm-hmm. um and then went to Sicily to do a vintage there. Really? Yeah. Whereabouts? Uh, just outside of Trapani on the west coast. Okay. Mm. Mm, interesting. Yeah. What, which what, was what crazy. sort of led you there? Uh, so that was doing working for a project that Kim Milne was operating through. Um, I think it was called International Wine Services, but basically that whole sort of flying winemaker model of bringing in Aussies and New Zealanders to work in. European winemakers, uh, wineries, and and make wine for the hmm. the British supermarket oh, okay. chains. Yeah. So yeah, it was pretty crazy. So that was playing around with um, the original um, Marsala variety, so Grillo, Grillo Greco, um, lots of Caterato as well, some Nero Davila, mm-hmm. uh, which was yeah. So that was a little bit of Shiraz. I mean, obviously not ind- indigenous to to Sicily, but um, yeah, spent a lot of time out in the vineyards as well. Did you enjoy um, being in Sicily? Oh, it was amazing. I didn't learn that much about winemaking, I have to say, because it was all pretty straightforward, but um, learned a lot about, like, just culturally, you know, mm. food and wine and put on about 10 kilo, um, all those <laughs> cannoli. All, all those long lunches. Gelato and, yeah, long lunches. Oh, you mean we're starting off with pasta? Yeah. Right. There's another three courses to go. Yeah. Holy shit. We haven't even got to the fish course yet. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. And they bring out this big trolley of all these different pastries and desserts. Oh, my God. So good. <laughs> so good. I can taste them now. That was crazy. Yeah. And then after that, um, so after Sicily went to Brokenwood and did vintage there in 99. Wow. And then ended up at Wurra at the end of 99. Okay. Yeah. 
And were you there for, that was, you were there for a while? Yeah, 10 years. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, we were obviously, you know, really, really possibly one of the most important producers in McLaren Vale. Sure. Uh, And, uh, you know, you got exposure to lots of different, you know, from Willamette, Sicily, Margaret River, Hunter, and then 10 years in McLaren Vale. They're all, they're all pretty different. Yeah. Pretty different climates. Absolutely. Very different sort of soils and, Absolutely. you know, wh- how, how did you kind of um, throw yourself into the, uh, the Wirra Wirra um, experience? Well, I guess, you know, I mean, what I'd learned up until that point and because I'd had that broad exposure to, you know, different climates, different microclimates, different soil types, different, you know, varieties, everything, I just learned that there was no recipe for making wine. So mm. you've just got to approach it. Each vintage is a complete new, completely new experience and just appraise it from there and sort out from the point of tasting the grapes as to what you're going to do with them. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it was an incredibly – I was really fortunate in terms of my position at Wirra. Um, you know, that was kind of the – when I f- first started there, that was like right in the boom of the Australian wine industry. So yeah. everything was going nuts. You couldn't, we couldn't make enough wine, mm. literally could not make enough wine. And then was there when it all started to get a little bit tough as well. 2008, so, nine, Oh, nine. earlier. Really? Um, okay. Yeah, sort of 2000 and – because, I mean, it was the middle of the, the drought, drought yeah. as well. So things started to – so 2004 onwards, everything started to get a little bit tough. Mm. Um so, yeah, have had experiences with a broad range of different conditions on, in terms of both making wine and selling it because obviously working at Wirra, you know, I was doing a lot of sales and marketing stuff yeah. as well. So, Travelling into the markets yeah. and yeah. talking with trade and media, that kind yeah. of thing, yeah. A lot, yeah. Uh, so, <clears throat> in in most of those cases, um, you know, it is sort of that, com- apart from maybe Elk Cove and Beaufort, uh, it's that combination of you know, owning vineyards and, you know, having your own fruit, but also having to buy some fruit in. Sure. Um, how did you find the, the, the management of, of those two different elements of, you know, fruit sourcing? Yeah, it's a juggle. Uh, I mean, I was fortunate at where we dealt with, obviously, a pretty broad pool of growers, over 30 different growers. Uh, and a lot of that is um, risk management as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're kind of – you're controlling your own fruit source and most of that is aimed at the top end because yeah. obviously if you're controlling it, then you've got the, the the resources to really be able to manage the vines according to how you want the fruit um, aimed at, at the wine styles that you're trying to make. Mm. Uh, and then with fruit that you're buying in, you're kind of spreading your risk as opposed to different locations and, and sites and different varieties and all of that kind of thing as well. Give some options to blend and, yeah. you know, yeah. one, one, one vineyard might, you know, give you more acidity to sort of That's bring, right. bring some freshness. Yeah. And in. the beauty of the, of the fact that I was at Wirra for such a long time was have, building that experience year after year of knowing how particular vin- vineyards were going to react in particular seasons. So, and that's it's really hard to underestimate that, like just that knowledge base of year after year after year, knowing how a vineyard's going to perform. Mm. It's pretty amazing. Mm. Yeah. Did you, uh, at this stage, were you, uh, having started in Willamette, you know, with Pinot Noir and a bit of Chardonnay and, you know, Pinot Gris and Riesling, stuff like that, yeah. um, and then, you know, ending up at Wirra for, for so long, yeah. you know, there 
pretty different grape varieties. Ooh, you know, yeah. Shiraz, Grenache, yeah. uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. You know, how, how did you really enjoy working with the, the, the in that warmer climate with those varieties? Well, I was lucky. Yeah, I mean, I love um, that style of Shiraz, and you know, I think McLaren Vale is incredibly underrated in terms of its Cabernet Sauvignon as well. Um, and Grenache at that point was still a hard sell, but I love those wines, and it's really only now. Well, the last few years that people have started to understand Grenache and what it's all about. Yeah. And particularly with Steve, people like Steve Panel doing such an amazing job with those wines mm. and really getting it out into the public in terms of what delicious food wines they are. So those warm climate styles um, certainly have, you know, whilst it's probably not as close to my heart as cool climate styles, you know, I still loved making them, still loved playing around with those, those styles. And particularly, you know, watching the transition over the last few years in terms of you know those big because when i first started at where it was all the the parker style you know the high alcohol fruit alcohol and, oak bombs yeah so watching that transition and how the producers have um matured into a more savory style making things that are a little bit more textural mm. um has just been fascinating over the last 10 years i think so were you living in Adelaide and commuting out to Wirra? No, I was living in McLaren Vale, so I lived in Wollonga. Okay. Mm -hmm. Did you get into into Adelaide much? Yeah, quite a bit. I mean, it's only, you know, 50 minutes away. So, yeah, spent a fair amount of time in Adelaide. And uh, and did you also have the opportunity to to travel a little bit, visit, you know, other regions in Australia and Yeah, know, well, we, um, I guess, uh, I mean, we sourced fruit from the Adelaide Hills and the Barossa and around um around the place so i traveled quite a lot uh and i guess as well um you know i traveled a lot as i said you know doing sales and marketing stuff mm. so yeah got out got out a fair bit and, and like going to to other wine events and meeting other you know winemakers from different yeah. regions you, you mm -hmm. got exposed to lots of different uh different wines from around australia yeah absolutely and i mean the the, the fortunate thing at Wirra is that um i had a fantastic boss Tim James, who um, really became a, a huge mentor for me. Um, Tim's uh, was well was is a highly experienced wine show judge and has got an incredible palate. Mm. So um, between and there was a couple of other others. Well, Julian Forward, who's now at Ministry of Clouds, he was sales and marketing manager at were at the time as well. Andrew Tierney, who's um, at. Uh, Torbreck, uh, and all of those guys had, you know, were passionate about wine. And both Andrew and Julian had come from Negotiants, and yeah, of, of course, course were as distributed by Negotiants. Smith, so yeah. we absolutely plundered the Negotiants import list, it's fair to say. When it comes to wine education and wine communication in Australia, there are a few names better known than James Halliday. James established Wine Companion many years ago to be a chronicle for Australian wines with ratings and reviews that evolved into an amazing online resource which has lots of information about producers in Australia. Uh, and then uh, a magazine uh, which is now called Halliday. Uh, Halliday has articles written not just by James but also by a number of talented writers uh, around Australia and even overseas. Uh, and as a special bonus to followers of this podcast, uh, the guys at Halliday and Wine Companion have offered a fantastic 30% discount on any subscription 
subscription package simply by entering at purchase the special code intrepid30 so do go to winecompanion.com.au have a look at some of the packages that they have uh, and uh, and look at getting one of those uh, subscriptions because it's a really great way to keep on top of everything that's happening in the wine world um so when you were sort of starting to finish up at Wira, what did you sort of have an idea about what the next project or the way where you might want to work would be? Uh, look, not really. It was just kind of got to that that point where I'd been at Wira for 10 years and I knew that if I didn't make a move soon, then, you know, it was all just going to get a little bit too comfortable, I suppose. So I knew that I needed a new challenge um, and that was when... So I kind of threw myself out there and actually resigned from where before had, I had anything else to go on to. Wow. Um, sometimes you've just got to chuck yourself into the abyss. <laughs> um, but then an opportunity came up as winemaker manager at Tower Estate and the Hunter. So moved okay. across to the Hunter. Yeah, so so back, to the, back, to the Hunter. back to the Hunter? Yeah. 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 How did you, uh, considering, you know, it being arguably the most historic wine region in Australia, um, how, how did you find, you know, going back to the Hunter, having worked for many years in McLaren Vale? It's such a different play. I mean, the Hunter's just, um, you know, it's got diff- a completely different skew from any other wine region that I've worked in, um, primarily because of the wine tourism, I guess, through there. You know, there's over, what's that, over 1.3 overnight visitors, over 1.3 million overnight visitors each year. Like, it's massive. Mm. Um, and that really completely changes the dynamic in the um in the region and then of course it's the hunter you know it's not the easiest place in the world to to grow grapes yeah um so yeah completely different from mclaren vale um very tight-knit community everyone's you know very amazingly dedicated to making incredible wine so Mm. um and obsessive about semillon and shiraz obviously yeah Um, and chardonnay now as well some terrific chardonnay is coming out from the hunter yeah absolutely um, how 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 many years were you uh, back in? Uh, uh, so I was at Tower for a couple of years, um, and then I worked for the Australian Wine Research Institute for a couple of years as well. Back in Adelaide? No, based no. in the Hunter. Oh, yeah. okay. So managing a node for the right. AWRI, so it was kind of like a outreach program. Um, did you have a particular area of focus? We were working on um, about a handful of various sort of regional projects, okay. I guess, looking at um, soil types and semion, for example. Um, so, yeah, really kind of my role was sort of to act as a conduit between that research and, and industry. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a great job. Um, but I started Stargazer in... 2012 before I actually started with the AWRI um, and then yeah when I finished up with the AWRI just I've been working for myself since then. So tell me um, when did the, the, the chrysalis of uh, Stargazer start you know when did you kind of have that idea about what kind of project you might want to have for yourself? Yeah well it was kind of a um, it was sort of a there was never really a plan I suppose I guess I'd always sort of thought about doing something for myself but never really had the guts to do it um until after i finished at tower estate and i did a vintage at bay of fires in 2012 yeah um and tower had been 
when I was at Tower, we'd been buying some fruit from Tasmania anyway. Really? So I've been coming backwards and forwards. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, was that so, your first exposure to Tasmania? I'd had a couple of trips down here with Wirra as well. Mm, um, to sell. Yeah, just doing sales and marketing stuff. Uh, and then, yeah, started buying some fruit down here and spending more time in vineyards and just was like, yeah, this is pretty cool. This fruit's pretty awesome. Mm. Um, so, yeah, 2012 pretty, got pretty the opportunity. Cool. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. <laughs> uh, got the opportunity to buy some fruit and, you know, whole 1.6 ton of Pinot. Mm-hmm. Paid for it on my credit card because <laughs> I had no money. Um, so, yeah, that's how it all sort of started. So, um, so yeah, so you threw yourself into, into Pinot. Did you have yeah. a particular idea about how you wanted to express it, you know, drawing on your experiences, you know, for example, in, uh, in, in the Willamette Valley? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I love the Oregon style of those quite highly aromatic wines that have got those supple tannins and, um, and that's the seduction in Pinot for me is just those, those aromatics and getting the nose right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a saying, you know, get the nose right and everything else will follow. And that's pretty much how I approach Pinot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, did you make it down here? Yeah, I made it down here for the first couple of years. Um, so, I was going backwards and forwards a lot, uh, get, you know, building up those frequent flyer points. Um, and then 20, so 2015, it was last year, wasn't it? Um, actually brought the fruit up to the hunter um, and made the wines because I was living at that point right next door to Mike Deulius. Mm-hmm. Um, so made the wines there simply because I didn't have enough time to come down to Tassie for vintage because uh, I've been doing some consulting for a few other companies as well. Um, and then, yeah, in February this year, bit the bullet and moved down. And are you, are you full-time with Stargazer? Oh, well, I sort of, you know, um, that's probably half and half, I guess. I'm still doing some consulting okay, um, to pay the bills. So, yeah, but Stargazer's going really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do a Pinot Riesling Chardonnay and a Pinot Greg Gewurz Riesling blend as mm-hmm. well. Um, all of the wines from the most recent release have sold out, sold out a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just bought a little vineyard early this year as well. Wow. Yeah. On your credit card? <laughs> no. <laughs> My credit card limit doesn't quite yeah, that would have maxed it out completely. Um, no, I managed to con the yeah, con the bank into giving me some money. So yeah. So um when you as you added more wines, um, what was the did you kind of feel like you had a philosophy across um, the the whole range of different stargazer wines. Were you were you taking? A well, it was always approach? going to be about Chardonnay, Pinot, and Riesling. Mm. Um, and then it is Tasmania after all. It is Tasmania, and they're the varieties that I love. Um, so, and then the the idea behind the the Pinot Greek Gewurz Riesling was really to do something that was, um, you know, making the most of those three different. Varieties. I love Gewurz, but I think you know it can be quite overpowering as a single varietal. Um, and that whole, I guess, it kind of it almost goes back to my Wirra days in Church Block, and that whole idea of a blend being greater G- than yeah, the a individual GSM parts, as opposed to yeah, the yeah. So you know, and you know, the Pinot Gris Gewurz Riesling, that sort of Jeanti, you know, Hugo yeah, Jeanti model. That's exactly what um, I was thinking. Something which isn't 
which is about a complete wine. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm trying to do with that. Well, in the same way that, you know, you, you, at Cape Mentel, they wouldn't just do 100% Cabernet Sauvignon. They'd, exactly. they'd blend in some Merlot and maybe, you know, some Petit Verdot and Cabernet Franc just to sort of round out the, the blend. Um, that's right. And so, as far as the whites, what, how 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 do you actually make those wines? Oh, well, all of my wines are wild ferment, um, and that's because you know I'm really trying to move away from wines which are out and out fruit bombs, yeah, to wines which are more savoury, more have more texture, um, more about the the feel on the palate rather than hitting you on the nose. So I'm happy to, and and also because I think you know Tassie over delivers from a fruit perspective aromatically as well so kind of taming that down a little bit and trying to get some secondaries in um from the beginning so to make the wines a little bit more toned down but really to focus on that textural element Mm -hmm. so yeah so the riesling is um well this year it's it's fermented in stainless steel i've got a ceramic egg for the first time this year and there's a little bit in oak as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and they all look completely different. So, um, but yeah, a little bit of residual sugar, which and that wild ferment kind of fills out the mid palate a little bit. So you kind of acts as a little bit of a bridge between the acid and the sugar. So, yeah. Where, where have you been sourcing the fruit from? Which parts of Tasmania? Uh, so predominantly from down south. So the Pinot up until now has been from the Huon Valley um, Riesling from the Derwent and Chardonnay from the Coal River mm-hmm. and the Pinot Grand Gewurz is from the Tamar Valley up north. So, how, how would you categorise those different parts of Tasmania? Um, yeah, do, do I mean... You, do you feel that um, certain valleys are better for certain varieties or do you think that they can all have the potential to, to produce you know great fruit from the different varieties but just different? Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting one because Tasmania is still a relatively young... Um, wine region and because there's you know the grape growing area is so small there's only 1500 1600 hectares in Tasmania altogether it's just tiny so you know I mean my feeling is very much that the best sites in Tassie are yet to be even planted okay um and that's what I you know I'm driving around the Coal River Valley or whatever and just looking at these amazing slopes and going oh my god that would be incredible um so I think it's really there's almost not enough vineyard area to kind of be able to say categorically what's happening in each region. I mean, obviously we know that the Coal River and the Derwent Valley are drier than the Huon Valley and Huon Valley is a bit later and and Tamar Valley, you know, can be wetter as well. Um, But I certainly, and I, you know, as I said, I'm in early days making wine down here. I don't have that history that I had in McLarenville, for instance, of years and years and years of, of vintages to be able to draw those conclusions just yet. But well, there also isn't, you know, 100 plus years of winemaking yeah, uh, that's right. history in Tasmania that's right. either. You know, like yeah. as far as just vine age, they're still only coming on to what, 30, 40 years yeah. at most? And a lot of those vines, as I said, you know, I think the best vineyards are yet to be found but or are yet to be planted. But also, you know, clonally wise, a lot of the early plantings were... Um, for both Chardonnay and Pinot clones for sparkling wine, right? Um, rather than you know serious table wine. So, um, well, that's really interesting because for a long time I've I uh, you know and I'm sure most people would agree with me have found that you know the absolute best smart, sparkling base has been coming from Tasmania. Oh, for sure. But I I've always found um, Tasmanian Chardonnay and Pinot Noir 
on the underwhelming side, not just because, not because it hasn't been good, but just because it tastes very similar. Yeah. Like I, I haven't really seen a lot of sub-regional diversity. Like yeah. I, I couldn't tell you what the difference between a Tamar and a Coal River Pinot Noir is. Yeah. Um, but, 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 yeah, so I kind of always wondered why is it so great for, for sparkling base, yet they can't seem to kind of get a really, you know, distinct uh, expression of, you know, the table wines. Yeah. And, and I think that's probably well, I think part that, of the reason. Yeah, the, I think the clones. I mean, clones is a large part of it. Um, you know, vine age, vineyard site, winemaking as well. They're all areas that will only, you know, I think, and that's the exciting thing for me, I think the best years of the Tassie wine industry are. Yeah. Do you think that there uh, is a, a big kind of revolution going on, or this a start of a revolution oh, happening absolutely. in Tasmania? Absolutely. A lot of people actually starting to make their yep. own wines now? Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, I mean, there's more people like me moving down here. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, I mean, obviously there's the big company investment, which has provided the basis for the triangle, I suppose, if you like. Um, but, yeah, there's there's so much good stuff happening down here that it's it's only going to mushroom, I think. Do you think that there's a, a, a there's going to be a, a continued be a burgeoning uh, wine tourism industry? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I really see this place, and that's why I love. You know, it's it's just been a revelation moving down here and just absolutely loving it. But it's just reminds me so much of New Zealand and just that opportunity. Not so much from a wine tourism, well, and not junction with wine tourism, yeah. but with ecotourism as well. And then you've got the art side of it with yeah. Mona and like, it's just a And as I've experienced this weekend, you know, the dining scene, for example, is, is really vibrant. Oh, it's off the charts. Hobart, yeah. Like just amazing food. Yeah. Um, and so it all comes together from a cultural perspective. It's all going to come together, which is, yeah, fantastic. And people, I think, you know, I know people who live down here who have moved down here. Clearly there's something about the quality of life down here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, I mean, for example, I can walk five minutes up the road and there's a fantastic reserve that's, you know, got the most incredible views right out of Hobart and yeah. it's right there. I can take my dog to the beach and it's, you know, 10 minutes, you know, I've got a selection of amazing dog beaches like 10 minutes away from here. It's incredible. Mm. I can walk down to the farmer's market from my place yeah. on a Sunday and grab, you know, a loaf of incredible sourdough. I mean, you can't do that. For me to be able to do that when I've been used to living in the boondocks for years and years, to have that quality of life, to have that accessibility, and yet the winery is only 20 minutes away and my vineyard's 30 minutes away, mm. you know, that mm. just does not happen in any other wine region in Australia. So tell me about this vineyard. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. So it's only um, there's only a hectare planted at the moment. There's a hectare, just over a hectare of olives. Wow. Uh, which I've got no intention of learning anything about. So <laughs> that's going to be basically leased out. I think the idea was to kind of pull it out at the start, but I think I'll keep it in terms of you know avoiding that monocultural Biodiversity. situation. Biodiversity, exactly. Um, that's what the Italians so, do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, 10 hectare block, um, some really great dirt, great northeastern exposure, um, water, which is important down here. So, yeah, so I'm just starting plans for planting some more at the moment. So, is northern exposure a lot more important in Tasmania? Because I know that, you know, on the mainland, in a lot of cases, people sort of want to avoid a full, you know, northern exposure because, yeah. you know, you, you might get burnt grapes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, um, you know, obviously it's so much cooler down here. Um, and so you need that northern exposure just to in, in, ensure that you're getting 
um, the right ripening periods. Mm. What what is currently planted, and what are you thinking about planting? Uh, so there's um, it's half riesling, half pinot at the moment. So I think there's probably about four hectares that are plantable. So I'm hoping to put in two hectares in 2017 because you've got to order the plant material now to to get them in the ground in 20, spring 2017. So I'll put in some more riesling. I'll put in some chardonnay. Um, some more Pinot, obviously, so mm-hmm. the clones that I really like. Um, and then I want to put in some Pinot Blanc and some Gamay. Gamay? Mm. Interesting. I love Gamay. Yeah? Where yeah. did that love come from? Uh, just, you know, I really like those medium-bodied styles of slurpy wines, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, I mean, I've, you know, always enjoyed Beaujolais when they're not pretty. Um, so... <laughs> So, um, you know, and I think some of the gamets being produced in Australia now are pretty delicious. Yes. Yeah, right, Brian, back... um, Brian Martin's Ravensworth gamay, so good. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm hoping, hoping, hoping to have Brian on very soon, obviously, um, a Sorenberg uh, gamay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I had one from Tasmania last night. Ah, oh, the... At um, Brothers. Yeah, uh, two... Nev's... No, no. Domain Simmer, no? Uh, I, think, I think it is from that same vineyard, though. Okay. Um, Two bad spur. Yes. Yeah. So here in Valley. Really, yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Okay. I haven't tried that. Yeah. Wasn't it? it you know, it had some nice sort of savoury edges to it, but yeah. some, but but imminently drinkable. Yeah. Um. And finally, Stargazer. Tell me where that came from. Oh well, <laughs> it's a funny story actually because I went through hell and back trying to come up with the right name and um, had various ideas and you know obviously with having a degree in English literature, words are pretty important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for one reason or another, they didn't work. You know, it was already um, already trademarked by someone else or it just didn't work or blah, blah, blah. So I rang up um, Paul Henry, who's a good mate. Uh, he used to be the general manager of marketing at Wine Australia and is now at, runs his own company, Wine Hero. Is it based um, over in the UK? He's based in he's he's a pom, but he's based in Adelaide. Right, okay. yeah, great bloke. And he'd said to me years ago, um, you know, if I, if I can ever help you out, just give me a buzz. So I rang him up in a complete panic, going, I "Need to get this name sorted." And um, he rang me back twenty four hours with Stargazer because he's <laughs> from Cornwall, and there's a um, there's a Fish in Cornwall called Stargazer. Oh. It's down here as well. There's a, yeah, it's kind of a deep sea um, whitefish. Um, Is it one of those ones with a light on their head? Not the light, but <laughs> yeah, like it's like a flounder. Like it's only got an, yeah, it's a really ugly fish. Yeah. Anyway, that's so, why it goes down to the deep sea because it wouldn't you wouldn't get any action further up. Correct. <laughs> um, so yeah, and then the more I thought about it, the more perfect it was because obviously. Um, you know, the idea was to to try and bring me being a Kiwi and living in Tasmania together. And I only just discovered when I was doing some research that Abel Tasman actually discovered New Zealand and Tasmania on the same voyage, mm-hmm. like within a week of each other. Um, so Stargazer, Navigating by the Stars, Compass, all that kind of thing, it all sort of started to come together. So, yeah. I'm surprised that Moet and Chandon hadn't trademarked it. Stargazer. Yeah. You know, the whole thing about Dom Perignon, come quickly, I'm, I'm looking at the stars. Yeah, I'm looking at the stars, yeah. But it's it's um, <laughs> it's been 
because I always knew it. I mean, you know, I'm not what's the sort of person to put my own name on the label. So yeah. I need, knew that I needed to absolutely nail the name and Paul Henry came to the rescue, which was great. But but clearly the wines, you know, if they're sold out, have, they've um, resonated with, with the customers. And I know that, you know, a lot of uh, great restaurants and wine bars just in Melbourne, you know, yeah. speak very, very highly of the Stargazer and it's part of... Um, you know, this changing um, perception of Tasmanian wine that they can be, you know, something a little bit more interesting coming out of Tasmania rather than just, you know, very same, same, but still sure. reasonably good quality. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, particularly in terms of table wines. So, yeah. uh, look, I'm excited to, to, Taste more of the Stargazer wines and, and see how uh, how they evolve and and, and follow the uh, and particularly the vineyard. Yeah, so well, that's fantastic. that's going to be the exciting thing for me is being able to control the fruit source. Uh, more exciting and terrifying, I have to say, um, controlling the fruit source moving forward um, and really, yeah, really getting my head around and getting to grips with the site. I'm sure particularly that we're aware experience will come in very handy. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, Sam, thank you very much for making some time uh, whilst I've been Pleasure. here in Hobart. Um, if people would like to find out more information about Stargazer, um, could you just let them know about a website and maybe any social media accounts that you might have? Yeah, sure. So I've pretty much got all of the social media covered so um at stargazer wine mm -hmm. uh for instagram and twitter and yeah on facebook as well stargazer wine and the website is www.stargazerwine.com.au pretty easy yeah jump on the mailing list yes that's probably pretty handy considering the wine sell out reasonably yeah. quickly <laughs> new releases in september <laughs> fantastic well thank you again pleasure thanks My sincerest thanks to Sam and to you, dear listeners, for uh, enjoying this week's episode. I have been James Scaresbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Of course, uh, I would love for you to follow me on social media, on Instagram, uh, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find me at Intrepid Wino, but you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, head to my YouTube page, also uh, called Intrepid Wino, uh, and you can check out some of my Let's Taste videos uh, and some uh, other videos, including my recent uh, exploits uh, with my first wine-making experience of my own. Uh, please do subscribe to the uh, podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or any other podcast hosting app. And if you do subscribe, it means you get the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. And it's a great way for you to uh, share your appreciation by uh, leaving a rating and review, which I really do appreciate. All the information, as always, is available at intrepidwino.com. Uh, I look forward to having you on uh, a, new, a new episode next week. But until then, bye. Bye.